listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson, the podcast where we discover how jack of all trades can still reach the top. It's time to embrace your wide variety of interests and turn down the prevailing pressure to spend all of your time becoming an expert. The greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Before we get started with today's podcast, we wanted to let you know how you can get the first chapter of Cliff Hudson's new book, Master of None, for free. All you need to do is text the word CLIFF, C-L-I-F-F, to 31996. That's CLIFF to 31996 to get your free chapter of Cliff's new book, Master of None. Now, on to today's conversation. Welcome to my podcast, Master of None. I'm Clifford Hudson. In my book, Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top, I cover several themes very applicable to today's program. Of course, I discuss the transition in my life and my career, but also the role that harmony played at different times in my life, different points in my career. My guest today, Jason Wright, knows about career transitions and can talk about harmony having a significant role in his life in several different settings and different occasions. Jason Wright is the president of the Washington football team. We're gonna discuss his path. His story is an interesting one with lots of opportunity ahead for Jason, I'm sure. On many levels, he knows about transition, personally and professionally and he knows the importance of harmony. It's my pleasure to share this time with you today with Jason Wright. Jason, welcome. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, my friend. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, good. It's a pleasure to be with you. I appreciate you you, uh, sharing this time with us. You're uh, obviously spending a lot of time on the East Coast these days, but you're, uh, if I kind of go through a little bit of chronology, the first big part of your life was spent in Southern California, if I have that correctly. You got it. You got it. I'm a California kid. I'm a California yeah. kid. I'm spo- spoiled by the beautiful weather and still mad when I have to shovel snow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a number of reasons to be uh, annoyed about that, but uh... <laughs> But yeah, I seem to, I have the impression when I look at your path in thinking about the, your early years that you went to high school all of, uh, you know, less than 20 miles from where you were born. Does that mean that through that first 18 years, you were pretty, pretty much in that 20 mile circumference or did you, uh, did you move around very much? Yeah. Well, you know, we, yeah, we were pretty much in that area. Um, but I always felt that I was sort of part of a bigger sort of national identity across the U.S. and a global one, too. My mom was a flight attendant for American Airlines for uh-huh. 40 years before uh-huh. she retired. And back in the day, in the 80s, the especially pre-9-11, uh, the rules were pretty lax on families traveling. So all we had to do was, you know, put on a little kid suit, show up to the airport, and in, you know, three standby allocations, we could get to basically any destination in the world. Wow. Uh, you wow. know, so I was a global traveler at a young age for free. You know, we'd fly yeah. for free and then we'd stay in some cheap motel somewhere in the world yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and just go see the world. Um, and so while I was definitely rooted at home, my experiences were um, both across the U.S. and global in nature. And uh, 
that really impacted me. Um, yeah, understanding, sure. you know, different perspectives, seeing things differently at a really young age, you know, becoming multilingual at a young age. And all of that made a big, made a big difference in, uh, you know, when it, with regard to harmony in particular, being able to recognize and make space for other perspectives was really helpful. But, you know, otherwise, yeah, I was in Cali going to and from school, yeah, <laughs> uh, right. that, that yeah. sort of thing. And was she, was she stationed out of uh, LAX? Yeah, she was based out yeah, of LAX, yeah. American Airlines. Yeah, her two main trips were LAX to JFK and LAX to Tokyo. Those were her two oh, big ones. Oh, my. Wow. Now you can build up some miles doing that. Mm-hmm. She, she, <laughs> she, she wasn't worried about getting mileage credit, I'm sure. So. <laughs> yeah. Now, I seem to re, uh, recall in um, our uh, uh prior discussions in your earlier years, really kind of on uh, parallel paths, uh, addition to and aside from, you know, your your childhood academic path, both very involved in sports, but also uh, involved in uh, music at a, yeah. at a young age. Talk to us about that. If you don't yeah, mind. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my first love was musical theater. Mm. Before I was actually really involved in sports, most of my out of school activity from a really young age was in the performing arts. You know, I, um, as a really young kid, I did like the, you know, the baby toddler spots in commercials and movies. <laughs> and then, uh, and then as I grew a deep love for singing, got into some acting troops and I actually traveled with a uh, musical theater group called Arise Academy out in the area in Southern California or gosh, probably from age around six all the way through age 11 or 12. So my weekends were full of, you know, multiple performances, a matinee and an evening. And by the end of it, my throat was sore and I was, you know, doing all the stuff to take care of myself during, you know, during those seasons. But I really, really loved it. Um, I really, really loved it. And um, for me, it was one of those moments as a kid, and especially as a kid growing up where I grew up with multiple pressures of both like the neighborhood I grew up in, being a black kid in the neighborhood I grew up in, pressures of academics, all the stuff that was happening at the time. It was a place where I was very free, very able to express myself where there was a natural flow to my talents. And, you know, there's nothing better than just sort of getting lost in a song, Mm -hmm. just getting lost in a song and, and letting the vocals flow. Yes, they do. And I can associate that with that so well. Uh, my own years of performing as a younger person, but also singing in choirs, because when you're mm-hmm. when you're uh, singing with, you know, a quartet or singing with 40 people, whatever it is, and doing your part and, and these harmonies are flowing, it may surprise some people. But I have always found that kind of experience to be a, a real head clearing experience, no matter what I was worried about when I arrived, uh, it was so relaxing to engage yes. in that kind of, that kind of activity because you know, so much energy flow was just strictly on the, on the performance, you know, a really positive, uh, personal in life, uh, sort of experience. Um, I think that's right. And I, I, I was uh, actually just recently thinking about this and I'll, I'll circle back to something that happened last night that triggered this conversation for me in my head, but you know, that place of like that peace of that freedom, mm-hmm. you know, you ne- at least for me, I never experienced that at the beginning of a new play or um, a new production or a new song. At the beginning, it very much felt mechanical and hard and mm-hmm. scrappy because you needed to learn the arrangement, mm-hmm. understand 
how the altos were going to come in and what the right timing was and how it meshed with your vocals or your capability. Because some songs I'm suited to, some songs I'm not as suited to and would take more time mm-hmm. or more practice. And then that's understanding where it fit in the flow of the play, if it's musical theater or just like a series of musical performances, where it fit and sort of the emotional. Like, so that beginning part was all about work mm-hmm. on your, at least my own craft. And more importantly, understanding the roles that everybody else had to play in the bigger context. But then once you got there and you had the basics there and you understood people's roles and made space for it, then you could release into it. Mm -hmm. And then after practice, it goes from that part of the conscious brain to a lot of that activity moving to that unconscious part of the brain and getting in that flow and that peaceful place and that blissful Mm -hmm. place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I just I was remembering that it really took like I remember just the nerves of taking on something new at the beginning. Right. But then the payoff later in that right. in that place of peace being yeah. so worth it. I always found in that kind of uh, particularly in a, in a group performance um, that another thing that would kind of pull you to a different place was uh, other people's performance. Yeah. Because, as you say, you know, when, what is the alto piece? What's the soprano piece? When you hear people coming in with an unusual part and and it's uh, and and it's beautiful, and how elevating that can be to, to your own desire to perform even better. Mm-hmm. What a what a fascinating dynamic that can be in that in that kind of a group activity. I think so. Now, as I look at your upbringing, as we've talked about this before, looking at your high school, so mm-hmm. uh, Diamond Bar High School. One of the things I was intrigued with, because I went to a large public high school. I don't know how large Diamond Bar, was. how many students were at Diamond Bar? Uh, when, I, when I left there, like almost 4,000. Okay, so it was a big high school. I, I My high school was 2,500 students. And uh, as I said, uh, uh, a large uh, public high school and uh, a lot of sports focus, a lot of other things too. But one of the things I noticed in looking at your fellow grads that were listed from your high school, there were, as I said, I went to a large public high school, but this characteristic was not true about mine. I noted at least four folks that were shown that had gone into Major League Baseball mm-hmm. from your high school and at least five that had gone to the NFL. Yep. So that tells me, I mean, if that were the case, and then this, there must have been scores, I mean, you know, literally hundreds over time, who went into college sports, almost yep. certainly. And, uh, and of course, it winnows down. But that tells me that uh, this, I don't know if that was just part of the local culture, but the fact that Diamond Bar had so many people going into professional sports, was that just coincidental or what? what's the... Uh, yeah, what? you know, it's interesting. I, I've never actually thought about the why underneath it. I think the youth sports programs were quite strong mm. in the 80s. And mm. so that created a funnel of a bunch of great talent. And then, you know, Diamond Bar had the advantage of being a good performing academic school mm-hmm. that was still sufficiently diverse. And so yes. it was somewhere that people were excited for their kids to be. So people would move into town, move in the district. Sometimes they used our address or someone else's address. No, okay. They would be in the district. Okay. Maybe, maybe. Well, yeah, yeah, no, maybe. Well, I think the statute of limitations is passed on that one. <laughs> exactly. So it's probably, probably exactly. okay. So. But, but yeah. I think there's a combination of things. But, you know, but to that point, I also think there was just, um, you know, there's a downside to this, but it was – at, at times, a bit of the, the stereotype of suburban culture where parents were really focused on their kids achieving. 
And if that chosen mode was sports, if that chosen mode was academics, if that chosen mode was performing arts, they were all in. And it was, you know, there were enough middle-class resources going around where people could really do it. So actually a good example of this is just on my street. So the 10 houses on like my portion of the street I grew up in. I grew up across the street from a guy who ended up being the fourth overall pick in the NBA draft, Keith Van Horn. Wow. Yeah, he lived right across the street from me. Wow. And he was he, uh, just, and he was, you know, about a decade older than me, but, you know, just a, a great guy and a great family. And then up the street, a guy who ended up going um, into professional tennis for a bit, like right up the street. And so that's like, that's just in our sort of 10 houses. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> sort nice. of our 10 houses on the block, right? And it was yeah. like that sort of around the area. We had a bunch of people that went into music as well. And yeah, okay. K-pop stars that yeah. uh, came out of our school. But I think it was just a general achievement culture. And there's a dark side to that. But there's a real, but there's a real positive side yeah. to that too, especially when it's right. in line with when it's in line with passion and it has some of those good attributes of personal growth with it. Right, and and uh, you know, I had to say that caused me to go back and look at my own high school. Well, you know, who, who are the alums that are mentioned there, and is it sports? Is it you know what is it? And so I did that just to, because it it pulled me that direction. And in my case, there are a few folks that went into a couple of NBA players and so on. But the more predominant piece was a lot of folks going into music, you know, in different different aspects of music, and that uh, so it was kind of interesting. Uh, and the and the school did have a good music program. It also had strong sports program and other things too. But anyway, it's just interesting to see the the some predominance of that. There's a lot of overlap between them. And like, you know, if I think back to how music set me up for sports, and then ultimately just business and my career, is that like. I think what music teaches is a mode of leadership, team membership, teamwork. Yeah. That is just broadly applicable and very effective, right? Like we talked I, about. I, yeah, I agree with right? it. I agree with that. Yeah. Like, like we talked about the, you know, the, the concept of, of harmony and learning each other's roles. I think that, you know, for any effective team to work, for any effective organization to work, like roles and responsibilities need to be clear. They need to be well-defined. People need to know when they come in, when the altos are supposed to come in, when I own this initiative for the organization, whatever it is. And when those things aren't clear, you get a bit of a cacophony. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> you get, you there know, you, you get a bit of, a bit of noise, uh, which, you know, may be joyful, may be exuberant, but don't sound that great. Yeah. But don't sound or that when, great. Or when one person thinks it's really supposed to be all about them. Yes. Uh, then then you, you get, you can get a discordant effect. Uh, within the organization. Uh, That's right. I mean, I, I, I had to learn that early on. Actually, I'll go back to when I was um, that uh, traveling troupe. Like I was usually one of the leads in one of the plays because I had good voice and I was pretty charismatic for a young kid. And I didn't mind like letting myself loose in the roles where a lot of kids sort of re are reserved. Um, and so I was used to playing a bunch of lead roles. But then our like the dozen or so um, kids that were part of the troupe we got asked to record a, an album that was like kids songs or kids singing Broadway songs or things like that. And it was a big deal. Right. We got into the production studio and, you know, it's about a dozen, 15 of us. And they actually pulled me out of the group and uh, I didn't record with the group and I didn't understand why at the time. And I was yeah. like, oh, are they going to let me back in at some point? And I was yeah. thinking in my head, like, all these other people are not as good as singers as me. And, like, right. I'm usually right. the lead, all this stuff. But my 
the way that I sang was not one that blended with the group. Yeah. Gotcha. was not one that led to, you know, sort of one unified voice that they wanted for us. They didn't need soloists. They didn't need a, to your, to your user word, a discordant voice. I remember, so I remember sitting there like mad and upset, like playing this little Pac-Man uh, arcade game for like six hours. Yeah. I was waiting on my parents to come get me and, and my friends in there. I'm like, wait a minute, why are they still in there? They're not even that good thinking in my head, but it's because it's a different type of teamwork. Yeah, they um, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is which is yeah. really important to understand later, you know, in right. perspective right. teams. That's definitely the yeah. way it is in my time in the NFL. Yeah, uh, it, it's a it's a great analogy. It's a great analogy. So when you finish high school and you move from Southern California to uh, Chicago to go to Northwestern University, that's quite some distance. Uh, you're also moving from you know continuously good weather to continuously not good weather. You know. So that's that's what, a diplomatic so, that's a diplomatic yeah. way of saying it. Yeah. So, so what drove that? Uh, why Chicago and 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 uh, Northwestern is of course a fantastic university, but why Northwestern and and uh, yeah, so you know, you know, God God knows what He's doing. Uh, God knows what He She it is doing. Um, but um, I was planning on going staying in California. You know, I had wanted to go to Stanford my whole life. And if not there, I was going to go to UC Berkeley. Like those were the two big schools in Cali and both, both great schools. Yeah. yeah. You know, like my parents were sticklers about academics, you know, they're, they're my dad's civil rights activist, and like their big thing was education is going to give you influence. So like, go get that. And then you can do good for us, for the race, whatever it is. So those were like my big targets coming out of high school. Well, Stanford offered me as a defensive player. And I believe that I was the best running back since Barry Sanders. So there's no way I was going to play defense. Mm. And then I was definitely wrong. Uh, (laughs) I might've been a great DB, who knows? And then UC Berkeley rescinded my offer once they got another running back they liked better. And so Northwestern was my third choice and really the only one my parents would still allow. (laughs) Mm. The Mm. others were like other schools in California that they didn't think either met the academic bar or that they thought were too close to home. And that I wouldn't actually break away. I think they were worried I would either not mature as an individual or, I don't know, have a kid my sophomore year and <laughs> like yeah. whatever, it, like whatever right. it was of just being too tied right. back to the neighborhood, you know? Right, right. Um, right. And so Northwestern, I sort of fell into, and they tricked me actually too, Cliff. I went out there in January for my recruiting visit and it was 40 degrees, crystal clear, beautiful day to me. That was a freezing cold winter experience. And I remember going to the coach who was my uh, recruiting lead and saying, hey, coach, like, I really like it here. You guys are great. It's a little cold for me. I just don't know if I can do this. You know, I'm from Cali. And he was like, don't worry, Jason. This is as cold as it gets. This is the worst weekend of the year. (laughs) Bold face lie. Just a straight lie. Oh, my first winter there was like negative two sideways right. ice and snow. I was like, oh, my gosh, get me out of here. I can't believe this. I can't believe I was tricked into this. Um, so I sort of fell into it. Um, but I am really grateful for all the reasons that my parents pushed me in that direction. Right. Really helped right. because it was the place where all of a sudden I was out of my element. I wasn't in a position of strength. All my insecurities that were buried were really coming to the surface. And I needed to be a part of a community to pursue harmony in a way that I had never done before, just to start to find my sense of identity and belonging. It was part of my own personal evolution. And um, 
yeah, learning how to be a real teammate, both from a football standpoint and from just being a member of a community on campus. Right. That had to happen there because I was so far away. Yeah, that's a fascinating, fascinating dynamic you're describing of what it demands of you. Yeah, in, in order to uh, put down some roots and so on, you've got to put out some branches too. That's so, right. That's, a, that's right. You yeah. got to compromise. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah. Imagine yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it looks as though you had a, a great experience there. Certainly, your uh, your athletic career uh, was very strong, and both in terms of the uh, all time you know performance and the you know top five and top ten lists that you remain on at Northwestern. Interesting that you uh, went into or studied psychology, but uh, given the path you've been on, psychology is probably a pretty good uh, field of study for, for you know, your, your work. But I find most interesting the fact that you uh, took the MCAT, or at least at one time we're yeah. thinking about going to med school. Is that, that, how long, did that not last very long? Or how no, that... I mean, it was, I, I, I finished school with all my pre-med requirements, took the MCAT, was ready to go. But that, um, that was very much something pushed by my parents. <laughs> ah, okay. Very much something pushed by my parents. Okay. And I was, and I'm, you know, I'm, I like math. So I was good enough at math, science, numbers to, to do well at it. I'm not the best with attention to detail, so I don't know if anyone would ever have wanted me as their orthopedic surgeon or their uh, <laughs> physician. Nah, not exactly. I, do. I get bored easily. I want to move on to the next topic. Not exactly right. what you want. I can relate the, to that. In the mindset of a physician. That that said, you know, that path, while it looked good, a great MCAT score, coming out with, you know, good production on the football field and going to the NFL was actually quite a challenging and formative journey to me and just re-emphasize the point of community. You know, I really struggled my freshman year there. I did not like it. Um, again, like I said, I was dealing with all my insecurities that I was able to bury because I was, you know, the star golden kid, you know, where I grew up, but they, you know, they really rose to the surface. I, you know, had a decent freshman season there. I played instead of redshirting and all that, but it wasn't, you know, I was by no means a star and that was mm-hmm. new for me too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't the coolest kid, so I didn't have a natural fit in the social flow of campus there. Um, and I, and it was really hard. And then that off season, uh, you know, one of the few, um, you know, strong supports for me was a guy who was from my hometown who was two years older than me and had gone to Northwestern from a, uh, a rival high school during the summer, during summer workouts, a bunch of us, including him, we had taken a bunch of illegal supplements to try to help us pass this conditioning test. And they're not good for you. There's a reason they're illegal. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of us passed out as a mm-hmm. result of it. And when I came to, the first thing they told me is that he had died right there on the field. He passed He passed away right there on the field. And, um, you know, it took a while for that to settle in. But the immediate feeling I had was guilt, you know, like the sense of, responsibility that I felt like I shared mm. for having had that happen. Cause we all knew it was illegal, but we were all pushing each other to do it anyway. Cause we wanted to pass this conditioning test or whatever it was. And, you know, for months I just really struggled with that. And I felt my isolation even more acutely, even more acutely than I had before. And um, I hadn't really been a person of faith before that, but I remember a couple of the girls in my dorm my freshman year who um, had been a part of a really strong church community there. Right. They had been talking to me about their relationship with God and how community had really helped them find their footing. And I used to ignore them. I used to ignore them and actually make fun of them. And then, and then at that same time, that summer after that happened, there were more voices in my ear to that point of 
faith community as uh, as a source of strength in moments like this. And so I said, I remember like, I don't know, just praying by myself one day in, the, in my apartment, like after a good, you know, not a good cry, but just a empty, bitter cry to being like, all right, God, you're out there and you're like, really all these people say you are. I want to be part of this thing. I want to be mm-hmm. part of this thing. Mm-hmm. So lead me to those people and take these other people out of my life that shouldn't be there. And I, next mm-hmm. morning I felt better. So I tried to renege on the prayer. Um, <laughs> cause I didn't want that. I didn't want all that. I didn't want to be one of those faith-based people, but you know, I think things were sort of set into motion. The universe was moving and, uh, I found myself suddenly in some really vibrant, interesting, different faith communities that became my home, became mm-hmm. my footing where I learned to operate in harmony with folks where people mm-hmm. built into my life and I was able to build into others. I learned a ton about leadership and, you know, frankly mm-hmm. saved me, you know, really saved yeah. me from a really dark yeah. place. So yeah, it, it looks, it looked pretty, looked pretty on the outside, but it wasn't. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it also sounds like it set a very good foundation for moving forward as well. That's right foundation for the rest of your life. Do you feel like a jack of all trades? Does this make you feel like you're less than your peers who are on the hunt to become a quote expert? Clifford Hudson, CEO of fast food chain Sonic for 23 years, imparts life and business lessons in his new book titled Master of None, How a Jack of All Trades Can Still Reach the Top. If you'd like to learn Clifford's nine rules of thumb to finding success in life as a jack of all trades, just visit cliffordhudson.com. There you'll be able to download the first chapter of this new book for free. That's cliffordhudson.com for the first chapter of Master of None today. Now, back to the interview. When I look at you know, the path that you've uh, followed, in a lot of ways, uh, this can be true in um, other circumstances. I've seen it in other circumstances. Sometimes it's true, many times it's not. But the very things you're describing and then, and then your life process for the next number of years, in many ways, kind of really preparing you, you know, for the moment where you are now and the demands that you have, but moving from college into the NFL. And, and, and I find it interesting that you not only uh, obviously played in the NFL for a number of years, but that you're, you were a player representative to the Players Association, which I can't help but think is something of an honor. I mean, you must, yeah. you must have been selected by your, your fellow athletes and teammates. And so what an honor that is. But uh, I would also think that there, uh, well, I don't know, think from what I read, that's the case. Many folks that move into your executive position that don't have that player back, that NFL player background, but your your business background, the fact that you, uh, after playing, went back to school, back to Chicago to go to your uh, to University of Chicago, your MBA, but all these things, your the player rep position, your degree in psychology, the the MBA, the work that you've done for a number of years with complex organizations. Uh, to uh, attempt to help, frankly, I think yeah. with with, with cult- cultural uh, transition, cultural evolution, make for healthier organizations. It's amazing to me. It seems like all of these things, you know, from your time in in uh, undergraduate school, the, the challenges that you described, but you know, the next ten and and more years, ten to fifteen years, having a fantastic role in preparing you for you know, now this extraordinary 
uh, challenge you have for what uh, one publication uh, said was the the best hire of 2020, you know, <laughs> to, to yeah. become president of the Washington football football team. So talk about that. If you yeah, well, I'll say this, like, uh, you know, while the best hire of 2020 is, is wonderful and is a nice accolade and, you know, credit to our owners for taking a you know different approach to you know, for someone to hire to this role, not someone who's been in the industry for a ton of time, all that stuff. My favorite accolades are the ones that you actually talked about. And that was, mm, you know, mm. being elected a players union rep by mm. my team and also being elected a team captain by that same team. Mm-hmm. Because that was the result, a direct result of the impact that I had on individuals there and the trust that that generated in them to have me represent them at a crucial time when it's about their mm-hmm. pocketbook and, you know, and their family's mm-hmm. welfare and all of that stuff. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think I've ever had a higher honor than that one. And, and NFL teams are full of great leaders and really, you know, to date remarkable men, because we haven't had any women in the NFL yet, but really remarkable men and leaders. And uh, so that, you know, I go back to that and that is the, the most important commendation I've received uh, besides my kids telling me they love me. but the way that that has translated into this role is one that has helped me to be circumspect. And I think, you know, this as a senior executive is being able to take the step back, be circumspect about a decision, a situation, a crisis is a really valuable capability to take that step back, to get out of the tactical day-to-days to remove yourself from the imminent stress or urgency of the moment mm-hmm. and try to see things in the big picture. The fact mm-hmm. that I've lived these multiple lives related to this job, whether that's mm-hmm. being on the player side, being a consultant who has evaluated companies in this situation and helped them through it, and then being in the chairman now and having the inside information into how our organization works, it's almost like I can flip on those versions of Jason and they help me to get the right amount of separation yeah. from the situation I'm in. Yeah. Um, it is really, help- if, if anything, in these first four and a half months on the job, that has been the biggest benefit of those sets of experiences. Like right now, I'm looking out on the field and it's all dug up. It's like a bunch of mud on the practice mm. fields outside. Mm. And it's something um, that is a major investment that's going to help the franchise because we need to do better drainage here because we need to be able to have more of our practices over the course of the year on the field. It's better for the players' bodies from a health and welfare standpoint. Uh, It's better for timing um, instead of them going on the indoor and being on a harder surface or things like that. But in a year where we lost a lot of money, no NFL team, I can't tell you how much because we keep those things very confidential, but no NFL team made money. I promise you that. Uh, And no NFL team lost a little money. (laughs) Everybody lost a lot of money this year. Yeah. Right. You're where you lost a lot of money. That's not an investment you think you'd make. It feels elective. But because I could take the step back out of that and say, okay, I know we are on this short-term PL pain, but I can flip on that Jason that was mm-hmm. the former player that understands health and safety. I walked on the field with um, one of our folks on the football side after a rain, and I could see like, oh, I would have zero comfort planting on this at full speed. And then that makes me more susceptible to injury. Just being able to have that perspective allowed me to take the step back yeah. and have a different ROI calculation yeah, yeah, yeah. on the investment in the practice field. Yeah, that's you know? great. And, right. and so, yeah. so it really helps me to 
make better decisions by being able to turn on those perspectives. And then to the point of, you know, harmony and seeing yourself in a bigger picture, ultimately seeing a part of my business role and a part of building the business is making the investments that improve football performance that then buoys my business in a way that I could never do on my own. So a little bit of it is knowing when to step in as the alto yeah, to, to chime in with the course. Yeah. Right. 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 And yeah, you're, you're uh, both relatively early in, uh, you know, you're what, six, seven months there now. Not even four and a half months. I know it feels like a long time. It feels like I'm sure it does. I'm sure it does. Yeah. But uh, it's like you had a a big year last month, you know, uh, exactly. Exactly. But that aside, uh, it's a little, I wouldn't uh, push you to the awkward uh, point of uh, details, but you must also, given the very reason you're brought in, you, you must also be, I mean, to follow the harmony piece, you must also be working with an organization to get them to sing a different song, you might say. That's right. That's right. Or, or, or look at a different song book or, you know, whatever. Yeah, and, yeah. I think, you know yeah. what I think it is? I think that, yeah, it's like one of my favorite movies is Sister Act 2, which is you know, a great choir movie if folks haven't seen it. Sister Act, Sister Act 2, great choir movies. But there is the performance of Oh Happy Day in Sister Act 2. And, and in practice, they had been great. Whoopi, Sister Mary Clarence had gotten them, you know, ready to perform on this big breakout performance for them. But when they step out there, they are sort of muffled. They, the lead singer is almost whispering as he's singing the solo. And that's a bit of what I have seen, uh, what I have seen that has happened to this culture over time. There are a lot of talented people here that at one point were lifting their voices at full volume, mm-hmm. wanting to sing. And maybe it was discordant. Maybe they didn't have the way to to unify and sound good together. And Mm -hmm. the directors of the time effectively said like, oh no, if you can't sing right, shut up. Shut up, Mm -hmm. we don't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. But you have to sing in order to run the business. So what I walked into was, I think a, a situation where people wanted to express themselves. They had business ideas. They had ideas of how the culture would change, but were afraid to let it out but we're afraid and would rather blend into the last row and just let other people carry the tune. But when, when too many people do that, you don't have a song. Yeah. Right, right, right. And and so I think, you know, and, and especially, especially and importantly, uh, the voices that had been most marginalized over that time, women's voices um, to a, a lesser degree, minority voices in this organization. And, and it's about giving those people, the space to lift right. their voices again. And right. when it doesn't sound exactly right, when it when we're trying to find our new song or our new roles, having grace for that and mm. saying, nope, I want you to keep raising your voice. Even though I didn't quite hit the mark, I want you to keep raising your voice. Here's how we mm-hmm. want to move it. Here's how we want to mm-hmm. do this. Um, mm-hmm. And giving people the space to grow into it because they hadn't had the opportunity before. Um, and a lot of that is rote. There's a lot of rote stuff associated with that. Like, got to build processes and have proper HR practices and policies and all that, all the mundane business stuff. But there's also, you know, some more 
uh, deeper cultural phenomenon, just role modeling, open communication, you know, mm-hmm. having the weekly ask me anything that I have with our staff where mm, yeah. we have a two way dialogue around what's happening with the business and they can ask right. pointed and sharp questions, having one on ones with people across the organization, you know, encouraging managers to have real two way feedback with the folks on their right. teams so that we start to see each other as peers instead of, you know, some military hierarchy type of construct. And, right. Right. Um, you know, all of that starts to heal things. Right. All that starts to right. heal things. Is the nature of the experience on the, you know, the business side, so to speak, does it uh, have uh, a similar ebb and flow that the football side, so to speak, the folks on the field, with your season uh, over now, does that shift uh, dramatically for you or, or is it uh, less so than uh, it does for, well, as an example, the players? Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. Is, yeah. What, what does the flow of the season mean to you like that now that your team is beyond the season, so to speak? Yeah. Well, I'll answer it in a couple of ways. You know, first of all, I'll answer the question you're asking, which is, you know, the shutoff switch. There's a hard shutoff switch when I was a player. It was wonderful. Whenever the season was over, like, hey, so, you got some real time off. Yeah, yeah, so real time off until spring conditioning starts. It could be two months, three months, depending on what the collective bargaining agreement was. But it was wonderful, you know. That doesn't exist on the business side. There is a little bit of a ratchet down typically. But for our situation, both because we're still in the middle of an important cultural transformation and I'm still mm-hmm. building out our team, still yeah. learning how, still building the muscle for assessing our business in a professionalized way, establishing metrics and goals and things like that. We still got a lot of heavy work to do, but also because we have some big things going on. You know, we've got a a rebrand, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, we Mm -hmm. jettisoned our old name in July before I joined. Right. And we need to establish a new identity and, and do it quickly. Our fans are asking for it. And so we're, you know, knee deep in that process, you know, we're looking for a new venue to call home. Uh, we, that could be anywhere across the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. You know, um, our lease is up in 2027 at our current site. And so, you know, we need a new home. It takes, you know, stadiums don't just pop up. So mm-hmm. there are some really big things that we're working on that don't afford us the opportunity to, to ratchet down. Yeah. Um, so it's, yeah. so it's a busy, a busy time for us, but I do know that right. as a challenge for me, frankly, and one that we should talk yeah. about separately, but people are going to need a break. They're going to need yeah. their space. Yeah. I'm going to need my space, but we have a lot to do. Any t- certain timeline on new name for the team? Ah, you're trying to get me, Cliff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I, actually, we should have one in uh, the coming months, but won't announce because okay. there's so many things yeah. that need to happen. Legal and trademarking, merchandise development. But you, but you would hope to by the next season have that yeah yeah we won't oh. we won't officially have the name by 21 it won't be out we'll have it mm. yeah but we'll still be Washington football team in 21 I see okay um but we'll have the other name whether we've announced it yet or not to be determined but certainly for 2022 we should right. be in the new identity but the, right. but the important thing is actually to the point of harmony is you know this fan base has been through a lot. This organization's been through a lot, but the fan base has been through a lot too. Yeah, that's right. And even in the rescinding of the old name, it was actually a divisive thing for the fan base. While a lot of the world outside of our organization and our broader Washington football family sees it as an unambiguously good move within our fan base, that you know 
had yeah. deep connections to this name and all of that. It's a very yeah. different story. And decades long. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a right. very That's different long. story. Yeah. You know, family memories associated with that name, all of that, you know, um, and that was really important for me to learn as an outsider coming yeah. in was to have empathy for that. And, yeah. um, you know, despite whatever I might think of the name and its connotation and right. all of that. And so right. it's actually the, the way that no one, I don't think there's any name we could, choose that everyone is going to unanimously be excited about. I think it's impossible unless I sprinkle some magic as I, you know, but I do think that if people feel engaged, if they feel heard, and if we communicate openly the why of every decision we're making along the way, we set ourselves up for success. And that's probably the best we can do. And then that takes time, right? If we're going to meaningfully engage people, it can't be like, yeah, pick a name out of a hat and, design the logo or else right. that will, that right. that's disingenuous. Well, you know, uh, it, it, not that it's a complete analogy because it's not, but I was living in Baltimore when the, when the Colts flew the coop, that, that was a shocker Now I realize we're now decades later, but even still the Baltimore Ravens got lots of fans, you know, these things uh, can be very difficult in the moment, but they can also be the ones which fans and new fans, you know, uh, yes. adapt and so on and so forth. So, well, it will be interesting as that occurs and and uh, as the new team name is announced, you move into the next season, et cetera, because that'll also coincide with your, your first anniversary on the job and your first decade lived in 12 months, you know, on the job. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, so that's right. It'll, be, it'll inter- be interesting to see uh, what that evolution looks and feels like for you and I'll be, I'll uh, certainly, uh, and I think everyone listening would have that reaction of, of uh, very interesting to see what happens to the transition of the culture and, and your impact from a leadership standpoint. As I said before, I think the job that you have at this point really is the logical culmination of, of about everything you pursued in your adult life. So it's a, uh, how lucky uh, Washington is to have you in that position and, oh, thanks, and how, how enjoyable to see the, the impact of that in, over time. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm excited about it, too. I mean, Coach, who's my counterpart here on the football side, is a remarkable man, a great leader, and has done amazing things already on yeah. the field. You know, yeah. division yeah. championship in our first, his first year um, yeah. with a super young team in the most yes. adverse of circumstances is just, yeah. you know, and, and navigating his own cancer healing journey is yeah. just, mm. it's, you know, the mm. stuff of movies, you know? Yeah. And so, right. Right. you know, and that has given me so much momentum, belief, faith in the direction we're headed and, you know, the new folks I brought in on the leadership team and the way that I'm encouraged by people starting to raise their voice, even though sometimes it might be discordant is a positive thing for yeah. uh, right. the business side of the organization. So I'm tired, my friend, but I'm optimistic yeah. and, and the labor feels worth it so far. So, yeah. uh, you know, 12 months hence. Um, we'll see where we're at. Right. Well, it's been a pleasure to visit this morning, Jason. I really appreciate you taking the time to do so. Your story is a great one on many fronts. And I think anyone listening to our podcast today that is earlier in their career or mid-career and certainly at a point of uh, having impact on an organization, even if it's a much smaller one than the Washington football team, I think can be inspired by your story. And I appreciate you sharing it today. And, and uh, I know I've got lots of company and saying uh, it's going to be fun to see your impact and enjoy your impact uh, in the coming years. So congratulations and, and good luck. But thanks for being with us today. Of course, Cliff, my pleasure. 
Thanks for listening to Master of None with Clifford Hudson. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you can visit cliffordhudson.com to receive the first chapter of Clifford's new book, Master of None, right now. And one more thing before you go. Would you leave a review of this podcast and let us know what you learned in today's conversation? And remember, the greatest lessons emerge from personal discovery, and variety is life's multiplier of opportunity. Oh,